Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Raj Dadada, who's the CEO and co-founder of Bloomreach, which has over 100 million of ARR, powers 400 billion of e-commerce sales, and has raised over $400 million. But these are just the headlines. Listen to the real story on Founders Uncut. Raj has been on this journey for 12 years and has had a few near-death experiences, but one of them nearly almost killed the company. So we're going to hear about that from him now. I started Bloomreach back in 2009, and in many ways, it was a rocket ship in its early days. And that was awesome. And it got to probably $25 million of revenue or ARR pretty quickly. And then somewhere halfway through the journey, about in 2015, 2016, pretty much everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. We started to experience 50% churn year over year. So our customers were leaving us in droves. Our product clearly wasn't working in the way in which it was intended to work. Uh, the team was obviously in you know serious jeopardy. And we had raised already by then, you know, a reasonable amount of money. So investors had just put in money in the company and were clearly um, expecting a return that wasn't forthcoming anytime soon. So I, I remember the moment where I picked up the phone and called our most recent investors and just said, hey, look, this whole thing could be a total zero. It could be worth absolutely nothing. I remember, you know, standing in front of an all hands meeting saying when we had to let some people go, which was brutal in those days. And saying, look, we built this business, but it turns out the business is not sustainable at all. It was a false dream that in many ways we had been on. It was around the time my co-founder left as well. And I knew that we were going to not be able to raise any more capital for any kind of new plan. So I just remember standing up in front of the room of our team members and saying, look, I'm not exactly sure what the plan is from here. And I wouldn't fault anybody from walking out the door if they want to, because clearly we don't have bright prospects right now. But what I can tell you is, that I'm still here, that we still intend to build a billion dollar company that I have absolutely no idea how, but if you want to stick around and help me figure that out, stick around. And it was pretty remarkable how many people stuck out that part of the journey. And if you really look at what's happened since and you look backward, in many ways, the company was a complete restart about six years ago in 2016. And the real story is that the revenue of the company went from zero to 25 million, back down to 1 million, and now up to what is almost 140 million in six years. That's incredible. So at that moment in that all hands, how many people left after that? What percentage? I'd say probably 20% of people left, but actually 80% of people stayed. Which is a high number if you think about it. It's a really high number. And I think the reason why is because at our roots, before I even wrote the plan for the company, I wrote what the, what I thought the culture should be. And the culture was so strong and there was so much affection for each other, so much belief in the mission, so much belief in that we could solve anything. You know, and that's the real test of culture, right? It's not when things are going well that the culture is tested. And it was very much tested in those moments. And it forged, I think, a, a much stronger company and an even stronger culture from there. And let's rewind a second before you get to that decision, because that's a hard decision to come to, right? Like, I think the transparency of saying, we don't know how we're going to do it, but clearly churn is high and we can't get from here to hundreds of millions. Right. But you still had customers, right? You still had 25 million. And so it's kind of tempting to say, like, let's just keep trudging the path. And I think some people may have made a different decision. And so how did you come to that conclusion yourself? 
before you shared it with somebody else? And, and was that a hard journey on your own decision? It was a hard journey. And if I were to be sort of self-critical about it, I actually think I took too long to come to that decision in many ways, because I kind of knew in the back of my mind, we had built this business that had a lot of platform risk. It had dependencies on Google and third parties that we didn't control in the end. And I sort of knew that, you know, things were kind of going too well and that one day the crap was going to hit the fan. It's just that that day took a long time to actually come. It took longer than in the back of my mind I thought it would. So if I could do it again, I would have figured that out probably three, four years earlier and not have had 25 million of revenue and a lot of really tough customer conversations. Because we also had to go to our customers. That was part of the plan and say, look, this product that you bought from us, we're going to support it, but we're not going to continue to invest in it because we're moving our business from sort of this planet to the other planet. And uh, we think you should be on this journey with us. But that's not a great thing to communicate to customers that have invested in your company and your product as well. So it was a very hard decision, but in many ways, I wish I had made the decision a lot earlier. And one of my board members said this to me really clearly. Uh, and I remember I appreciate him for this conversation. He said, hey, Raj, you have to decide if the planet you're inhabiting is repairable or whether it's uninhabitable. And you have to just go find another planet. But you have to decide which one it is. I can't tell you which one it is. And as I thought about that, I was like, no, this planet can't be repaired. Like, we need to go find another planet. I've never heard that, but I really like it. I think it's a really good test to yourself. And I love that they gave you the faith to figure that out, right? They weren't saying, we think this is the, you're the only one that knows. At the end of the day, I always tell founders, if the investor's giving you advice on how to run your company, it's the wrong investor, right? Like you're the one in the day-to-day that knows what they're doing. And so you're putting faith in the founder to figure that out. Um, Talk a little bit for a minute about how you communicate that to investors, because it's really hard to say, this planet's uninhabitable. We need to go find a new one. And how did you then get from you know, 25 to one to 140? Did you end up raising from different investors? Did you end up bringing some people on to do a bridge? Like, how did you actually get restarted on that new path and the new planet? Honestly, the true story is brutal. It's like absolutely brutal, right? Like I had raised money from great VCs, Lightspeed, Bain, NEA at the time. And I did call the partner at NEA who had just invested at a $400 million valuation two weeks after that saying, I think your investment could be worth absolutely nothing. And I remember how incredibly thoughtfully he he responded to that. He was like, we made the investment. A lot of that was based on you. We're here. That was it. There was nothing more. Uh, how can we help? That was sort of the conversation. So, Which is kind of a dream reaction, right? Especially a few weeks after. Exactly. And But these were not inexperienced investors. I always picked kind of the most experienced people I knew because I knew that and I believe this, that you want your investors to not have all their eggs in your basket because you want them to be balanced when this, when this bad news story you know, continues. Mm-hmm. So after, after that happened, we built a new plan and that plan involved building a new product from scratch and, and growing that. But I also knew we couldn't raise any money. So we literally used customer cash flows and didn't raise any money for five years, which is a crazy story, right? Like, we had the benefit of the customer cash flows was we said, all right, we just have to live. We have a declining amount of money coming in the door every day, but we have to live on that and we have to build new things that will offset that. So we went through a five-year period where it just did not feel like there was any success because you know the 25 million would come down to like 20 and the zero would go to 1 million. And so it felt like an aggregate, nothing was going well. But in reality, we were building a, a new startup underneath the covers 
every step of the way. I totally isolated this business. I got a GM to go run it for cash flow, and we pivoted the entire company to build almost a new startup in uh, in 2016. And do you think that people felt that though? People definitely felt that. Yeah. And I had to continue to tell the story, you know, and it was a very important part of the journey, which was let's frame what success looks like. We're just not going to care what's happening with the 25. We're going to kind of care with the zero going to a hundred thousand, going to 1 million, going to 3 million. And we're just going to evaluate our success totally on that. And I just kept reinforcing that message over about the investors. I was just incredibly transparent with them. As a VC, you often get the phone call that things are not going as you expected when you invested, but it's often like over a longer period of time, right? Two weeks after the investment is fast. Did you have a sense going into that fundraise that it was going to be difficult or did you end up as the fundraise was shaking out, figuring out that the planet was uninhabitable? I don't think I fully understood that. I think I think I came to that realization maybe a few months after that, but I already knew that things were going poorly. But really, a lot of events happened actually even at, right after the investment that accelerated that. So even in those two weeks, I remember a lot of really bad things happened that accelerated our thinking. But I don't think I would have raised the money if I knew that was what was going to happen. But it did end up being fortuitous because at least we had some balance sheet that we could work off of for some period of time. Now, that money was intended to last for like a year. It wasn't intended to last for five years. Yeah, there's a misconception, I think, in venture where the, the companies that do well do well and they're obvious, but actually things go from hero to zero and zero to hero overnight, right? Sometimes two weeks can change the complete direction of a company. And sometimes you're, you know, a company that I worked with in my last fund went almost bankrupt twice and then was the fastest growth trajectory we've ever seen. So I think these things do happen sometimes faster than you think. And I feel like that five-year period where you had to work off customer cash flows also probably forced you to build the company differently, right? Like you, to your point, you reframed success, but you also probably had to be forced to build it in a different way and make sure you have customer fit. hundred percent. And so many things went were, it was so hard, but at the same time, what, here's what it meant. It meant, for example, we couldn't afford to operate in Silicon Valley because we just didn't have the money to pay people. So we started to set up outside. Many years later, when the world became, you know, pandemic, we were already basically a remote first company. From a customer perspective, we had to really pick customers that would pay us and that would often pay us up front. And all of a sudden, five years later, people looked at our business and they were like, wow, we're collecting so much cash up front. How'd you do that? We started to look at, at investments in products or sales. We were incredibly unit economics focused, which then meant our unit economics much later go really good. So there was just so many things that happened along the way that you know, in 2021, which is the next time I raised capital, people looked at this business and they were like, how did you do this? You know, we, we actually did acquisitions, but we did acquisitions for stuff because we didn't have any cash. So we did a bunch of things that I think were very unorthodox because we had no choice. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit about your mindset, right? Because in this journey, you're being as transparent as you can be with people and they're coming and they're following you on this journey. But at the same time, you're probably doubting yourself sometimes, right? Like sometimes the signals probably show you it's working. Sometimes it's not. So obviously at some point you get trajectory where you know it's working. But in that kind of one to five figuring out if you're getting back up and running, how do you deal with your own mindset and making sure you're still kind of believing yourself in the journey? Yeah. So, you know, uh, what had also happened is just prior to things like really hitting the fan, we actually had an acquisition offer that was pretty good that then fell through, right? So it was even worse because it sort of felt like we're almost at a mountaintop that you could live with, that was very good. And then that mountain pulled underneath you 
and, and but you have that in the back of your mind. So I remember going through that period of time where emotionally I was like, you know, I'm telling people to stick with me, but am I ready to stick with, with myself? Right? And I had, you know, very young kids at that time, you know, living in an expensive place. So we had other personal pressures that weren't great and uh, felt like opportunity cost was very high. And then I remember like thinking to myself, look, you can't be the leader of this if you're half it. You either have to either leave and wrap it up or be 100% and then stop questioning everything all the time about whether or not we're going to succeed or not. So I started to tell myself, when doubt creeps up, you're not allowed to think about it. So I was like, you know, you only get to make one decision, which is, are you in or are you out? You don't get to agonize one way or the other once you've made that decision. I think that was really helpful. And honestly, it's probably the only way you ever make any startup work, right? Because by definition, you're creating something new that you don't know if it should exist. And so like, if you don't believe in it and just go all in, there's no way to find out if, you, if it's going to work. That's right. So this is not your first rodeo, right? This is not my first rodeo. I do tell founders all the time that, you know, you have to be very real about your issues. Don't confuse whether you're going to be real about the problems of the company, whether you are all in to fix those problems, right? People often are either wildly optimistic and unrealistic. It's possible to be a problem solver, but not be questioning whether this is the right career choice in your life. And I think that's the key quality when adversity hits. So I had done this before. So I, in fact, when I started this business, I spent what I would call my two years in the wilderness, where I, I tried to start almost eight companies. And for one reason or another, you know, something would go wrong. And I remember picking up my head and just making sure I was employable, getting a job offer, turning it down and getting back to it. So that pattern of just dealing with uncertainty is one that I became very accustomed to. And that would help me later on. Yeah. And what has changed over the years? You know, you founded multiple things before. What have you learned and what do you wish you knew as a founder earlier in the journey? Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, it has sometimes become over glamorized pursuit. And at the end of the day, founding a business is just simply a dream, believing in it and doing it, right? It's not a whole lot. There's, there's a, there's some best practices. There's some things to learn and so on and so forth. But, but I do feel that sometimes there's over analysis and, and the call that I get often from friends is like, Hey, Raj, I'm thinking about starting a company. You built a $2 billion you know, business. Can you help me? What do you think? Do you think it's a good idea? And my first response is, okay, you're working at Google. Do you not like your manager? Did you not get a raise? Are you not on the right project? Do you not, you know, what's the deal? Um, because if you have to quit and you're not already kind of on the journey and you're analyzing that question, then you're, you know, it's probably the wrong question to ask because rationally it's never the right to do. You either just do it because you can't imagine your life without doing it. Or you don't do it. That's what I learned through the journey. In the end, what you have is your own judgment and your own, you know, core mental strength. And so, you know, if you're looking, if you're spending a lot of time, like I want mentors, I want advisors, I need investors, I need, if you're looking for a ton of validation, it may not be the right pursuit for you. Cause in the end, you have to rely on yourself. Of course, your core team, but even the core team can quit and founders get to quit. Yeah. You are so right. Um, let, let's talk about that core team for a second and the co-founding experience. You had a co-founder who left as part of the journey. Um, how do you think about building the right co-founder relationships and, and knowing that you're the right founder for any given moment in a company because the company changes over time? Yeah, that's definitely true. And, and I think basically that there are two ways of creating 
companies and co-founding teams. One way is, I know the people, I'm looking for the idea. The other is, I know the idea, I'm looking for the people. Those are your two ways, in a nutshell. And a lot of people do the first, and I think that's very effective. You you believe in somebody, you have complementary skill sets, you say, let's do together, and, and then you go try to figure it out. I've always actually done the second. At least in this venture, since my earliest days, I've been a technical co-founder. I was earlier on, but more recently, you know, my job is to identify a problem worth solving. And that's the most important job that I have. Because I believe if I identify a problem worth solving, I can go find co-founders that are the best technical people in the world who love problem solving and say, hey, here's why I think this is worth solving. Help me solve it. And by the way, engineers like nothing more than their problems to solve. But they're often not the best in the world at identifying what problems are worth solving. So that's where I feel like, you know, my job is. So in this case, you know, I, I went out, I did a lot of research, and when I had conviction, then we actually went, I actually went to talk to lots of technical co-founders, found somebody who I had great chemistry, great complementarity, believed in it. We, we kind of worked together for two or three months, felt like it really fit, and it came together. And then we recruited a early team out of that. And in fact, my Series A pitch for, for the center was, you know, I think we're going to go, you know, personalize the web. Do we all agree that if it happens, that's worth our money? Yes. So do we all agree that, that the hardest problem to solve is technically whether or not we're capable of doing that at scale in a software business about services and things of that type? Investors said yes. I said, great. Then you need to give me, you know, a couple million dollars. And I'm just going to hire like four or five people and let them fail the best in the world and let them fail a whole bunch of times until we solve the problem. You've raised from some dream investors, honestly, right? So what is your advice on fundraising? What have you learned over the years? How should you choose an investor and how should you fundraise to get the right investor? Yeah. So a couple of questions there. And uh, on investors, the first thing, you know, that I'll say with investors is, you know, let's say it's really hard, you know, you're unsuccessful at raising money for whatever reason. And I have been through fundraising processes that are incredibly brutal. One of two things is true in that case. Either you've got a bad idea or you're a bad salesperson. Because if you believe in something and you can't convince an investor to give you money for it when there's so much capital in the world, um, you know, then, then you've got to reevaluate, you know, I, I think whether you're the right person or whether the idea is good enough. So that's the first, first thing I'll say. But in terms of investors and investor choice, I also have an unorthodox process, you know, of fundraising, which is for most of the company's journey. And I, I think I'm on series F to give you a sense of how many rounds I've raised. I've done probably 10 fundraising rounds in my life. And what I believe is that you don't go run the fundraising process like, okay, I'm, I'm now ready to raise a series B. Let me go meet five investors, 10 investors, 50 investors and pitch. You spend your time getting to know people deeply before a fundraising. And then by the time you're doing the fundraise, the fundraise should be the investor saying, I pretty much know this business. I'm really interested in potentially investing, which is a very different process than others have done. So I invested a lot of time. And, I, and part of that I do because I think in the moment of a transaction, picking a good investor is really hard because all the motivations are to get it done quickly. And getting to know people takes time. So I try to do that before every fundraising process. And now it's changed a little bit now because the company is pretty much IPO scale. And now you're talking about a different class of investors. But in the early days, I think that's incredibly important, you know, and in order, in my mind, it is person, firm, you know, and then capital. 
right? So because you're picking a partner that you, it's really hard to get rid of later on. So I really try to get to know people. I, I, I don't believe in the story of, hey, I invested in these five other really hot, really cool companies. Therefore, you should let me invest in your company. Because my answer is, what correlation do those two things have with each other? The fact that you've invested in other great companies, why does that mean I'm going to be successful? I don't really care that the other companies are successful, frankly. Yeah. And quite frankly, you probably invested in a bunch of companies that weren't successful as well. That's true. <laughs> exactly. Right. So in the end, the correlation and causation question is not well understood, I think, by most entrepreneurs. The, in the end, you are the reason you're going to be successful and your team and, and then investors are going to help you know, a little bit the way other people help on your journey. The last thing I'll say is if you agree that 5% of your success is because of your investors, 10%, we can debate the number, but it's certainly not 50. Then actually, you know, the opposite case is true as well. And I have been in startups where investors can destroy companies. Investors have a much greater ability to destroy a company than they have to make a company incredibly successful. No disrespect to investors who I, I think the world of the investors that we have. No, I agree with you. They just have different jobs than, than we have. So if that's true, actually the key question you should ask is before you talk about value add, what is the probability that this individual will be a value destroyer? And you've got to be 100% certain that this individual or this firm is not going to be a value destroyer. Yeah, it's so funny. I couldn't agree more. I started my career on the value add like platform side. And I think, I think investors can be truly valuable and they can be helpful. But to your point, it's not going to be zero to a hundred. The, the company is going to be successful with or without you. You can help them if you want. But then I also have this view that that's the case, right? That we don't build companies. And so I was thinking, how do I reconcile those views that we're not actually that helpful, but then we can be helpful? And then I realized it's exactly your point. It's that there's a huge percentage of VCs, unfortunately, that are value destructive. So actually, if you're not value destructive, that is the main thing. And then if you want to add on top of that, that's even better, right? But it's also not even about the ad in terms of, I introduce you to a customer or I find you a talent, like that is helpful. But at the end of the day, you're going to do it anyway. But I think what matters more is actually when things are shitty and when you decide you're going to pivot the company and when things go wrong, how do I pick up the phone and how do I partner with you in that time? That's actually what matters, right? Am I the type of partner who actually just listens and helps you? Or do I make your life feel more miserable? And do I make your life feel more stressful in that moment? 100%. That's why, frankly, I appreciate our investors. Uh, I remember being there in 2015, 2016, in that fundraise where we needed the support of our existing investors to raise that. I said, look, you say you're entrepreneur friendly. This is the round you're going to show me that that's the case. Because I get it's hard to invest in this. So to sort of full circle here, my Series A investor, who invested in 2009, when the company later on has become very lots of opportunities to sell. Uh, there was liquidity options, all kinds of things. And instead, my Series A investor in 2022, 13 companies founding called me and said, I want to double down and we want, to, we want a growth fund because that's how much we believe. This is 13 years after the initial fund. Yeah, that's what you want, right? And also to give the audience a perspective, like that's hard for their LPs. They're on a 10-year fund cycle. They've renewed it three times. So like that really means they believe in you, right? I think it's important to pick the right investor. It's so super important. Uh, and it's, it's really about whether they're going to be there for you, as you say. In most fundraising processes, it's very hard to assess that. So you, that's why I believe in getting to know people so much in advance of a fundraise. 
And I think you're right about getting to know people in advance. I think sometimes it's hard. Some VCs will do it, some VCs won't. But how do you actually start vetting that before you're in that situation, to your point? Like, as you get to know people, what are you looking for? I mean, what I'm going to do is, let's say I have a round coming up in a year. I'm going to reach out to the partners. I'm going to reach out to senior people. I say, I have this business. Here's what, what it is. I'm happy to meet. I have no fundraising process. Brain. You might have portfolio companies or other related experience that I can benefit from. Some will take the meeting, some will not. Because I got no- nothing to ask them for. I'm not raising money. So I will reach out to people and some people will engage. Some people will not engage. As I have the discussions, I'll tell people, here's my problems. Here's what I think. And I'll see how they respond to that. Some people will meet again and they will remember and they will say, oh, I, these, these are the problems. What happened with those? And often I'll say, we solved those problems, but here's our new problems. So by the time they come to the fundraising process, they know how we operate. They've seen that we're real about the problems that we have. I've probably met other entrepreneurs that they've introduced me to along the way. So I just have a rich data set. And they do too, by the way. So when they're going to their investment committees, they can say, you know, I've known this company for two years. Here's what they said. You know, I believe. And they have a sample set of data that's much richer than ever. Yeah. And they get to see the say-do ratio, right? Did What did you say you do? What did you execute on? How did you handle it when the problem didn't get solved? I think that's all great. So in my prep for doing this podcast, I was checking out your LinkedIn and you had something, I think 11 months ago, talking about the journey and just saying you've never had more fun, right? I think a lot of this podcast is to just highlight how really hard it is to be a founder. And as you've highlighted, you've been through many near-death experiences. You've had moments where you didn't know if you believed in the company and but there's the other side, which is why you're doing this, right? Like you're having tons of fun. What do you love about being a founder? What I love about being a founder is there's absolutely nothing you can't do. I love the fact that we can reinvent anything at any time. I love the fact that we can set any culture, that we can set any wild and audacious goal, that we can rebuild anything. You know, and when the times are dark, I can reinvent the business. When the things are going well, but it's less apparent, you know, on the outside, I can say, I think now's the time to double down. I don't care about being fired. It's just, I have no fear whatsoever. Like I'm not trying to be the world's best CEOs. I'm trying to create a $10 billion company and make 7 billion people who live their lives online have better lives. And that's all I care about. That's just freeing. That's amazing. I I can hear the passion in your voice. Um, We're coming up on time, but I wanted to ask you one other thing because a lot of people want to write a book in their life. It's kind of like a bucket list thing for many people. So you wrote a book called The Digital Seeker and we'll put a link to it in the show notes for Amazon. But how was the process of writing a book and did you enjoy it or any advice on people who want to write a book? Yeah. Like everything else, things that are worthwhile are really hard and writing a book is really hard. It's been on my list for a while and therefore, you know, I wanted to write a book. I felt like, as I thought about this, that I had a thesis on our industry and how you build great digital experiences. So I decided to write a book that was beneficial to our team. I guess what I would say is approach it because it's a passion. You've got to like writing. Do it around a topic that you already are an expert in. Make sure that it's connected to your goals and, and that you know what those goals are. I wasn't trying to be, you know, a uh, author, you know, was very connected to my business and and the things that I know well, make it rich and interesting and that the kind of book that you would read to begin with. And then there's people who, you know, most writers, because I, I run a thousand person company, I don't have the time to do all the writing. So she was very helpful in that process. I got to know the publishing industry pretty effectively. I got to think about the marketing plan. So I got a lot of help in writing the book as well. That's great. 
Okay. And last question for you, since we talked about writing books, what are your, some of your favorite books to read? Can be about entrepreneurship or any other topic. You know, Shoe Dog, the Nike story is a great book that I love, for example, because I think it's another very real entrepreneurial story. I like the Everything Store. So those are two books that I like, but I like random books as well. I just read a, a book about Genghis Khan and uh, Mongolia and what it meant to build uh, you know, the empire that he built, which it turned out was larger than any empire in the history of the world. So, you know, I, I have an assorted set of interests. Amazing. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Maria. Thanks, Raj, for taking the time to be with us. If you want to check out more about Bloomreach, go to www.bloomreach.com. And to check out Raj's book, The Digital Seeker, look at the show notes so you can find it on Amazon. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you are doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thank you for joining us today. And if Raj's story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.